Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, a Global 4-Day Workweek pilot project was so successful, most firms involved say they won't go back. Should BC implement a similar project here in our province? One party leader thinks so. Plus, stage 2 water restrictions are set to begin in early August, meaning watering your lawn is now banned. Remember when we thought we lived in a rainforest? And our Friday rap panel weighs in on whether a realtor who drank milk from a carton in a house he was showing should be with a $20,000 fine. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Four Day Week Global, a New Zealand based nonprofit, uh, released findings from its latest installment of its pilot program, uh, testing out a four day work week in participating companies across a range of countries, including Canada, the US, Australia, and the, the UK. It found that after a year's testing uh, out the short week, it remained a huge success. Workers were more efficient, even as work uh, intensity dipped. They worked less and were able to better maintain their work life balance. Revenues, get this, revenues at these firms uh, participating grew by 15%, and a third of employees said they were uh, less likely to leave their jobs. Uh, as well, self-reported mental and physical health scores improved by 17 and 12%, respectively. So all in all, uh, a very uh, successful uh, pilot project across many companies in many countries. Now, our first guest says it's time we tried a similar pilot project right here in British Columbia. Sonia Firstenau is the leader of the BC Green Party, and she joins me now. Sonia, thank you for joining us today. Well, happy to be here, John. So, uh, lots to talk about here. Uh, when you look uh, at this particular program in so many different uh, countries, different sectors, uh, do you think, though, even though it is in many jurisdictions, it can actually work here in British Columbia? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It can work here in British Columbia. I mean, the interesting thing about all of these studies and pilots of four-day work weeks is that they are pretty consistent in the uh, outcomes that they deliver. So all of the things that you just uh, read off, productivity goes up, satisfaction for employers and employees goes up, burnout goes down. But one of the things I, I that really caught my eye in this latest report from the four-day work week folks was uh, when asked how much additional pay employees would require in their next job to go back to five days, 33% said between 26 and 50% more, 12% it would require more than 50% increase in their pay, and 14% said no amount of money would induce them to return to a five-day work week. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a, a very interesting uh, outcome in this, and I, it. it mirrors what comes out from the other reports, which is for people who get to have the experience of a four-day work or, as another way of framing it, a three-day weekend every week, mm-hmm. um, the benefits to their well-being, their health, their stress levels, their family life, there's a reduction in conflict in work-life balance, but also work-to-family balance. All of these things add up to... Uh, such a significant improvement in their lives that uh, there's for 14% of them, there's no amount of money that would make them go to a five-day work week again. How can government uh, push this agenda? Because there are some mm. industries that are regulated federally, others that would argue that, look, uh, one size does not fit all. Um, and in mm-hmm. some cases, there's parenting challenges you know, with kids. Um, how do you think something like that, beyond just a cultural shift, uh, mm-hmm. How do you think we implement something like that? 
Yeah, so we made a call for this uh, uh, back uh, in the springtime, February, uh, early spring, I guess, February 23rd. Mm-hmm. We were hoping for spring there. And um, and what we proposed was something similar to what's just been announced in Maryland. Uh, there was a bill there that says, try a, uh, have the provincial government uh, offer a three-year pilot of the four-day week. And in exchange for businesses that that take on the four-day week, offer a tax incentive, so uh, you get a reduction in your provincial taxes in exchange for data. So you'd collect, as these other pilot projects have done, you would collect data on your employee well-being, employer satisfaction, productivity, revenue, and provide that data so that government can have that evidence basis for making decisions. I think that that's the easiest way to do it in that it, it isn't a one-size-fits-all, fit all, but it is an incentive to businesses in saying, hey, we'll, we'll take some of your tax burden away if you're willing to, uh, to try out a pilot of a four-day work week. The other benefit that we see, of course, when people's well-being and stress levels uh, are, are improved because of a four-day week, we see less of a burden on things like our health care system. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you f- fear, though, let's just say if all of what you're saying, you're able to do that in a, in a, in a pilot project format, and it turns out, let's say it's a mm-hmm. success. Uh, how do you do that, though, with the society that we have today? People working different hours. We're a 24-7 society in some cases. Uh, there are jobs that just basically would not fit a, a four-day work week, one would argue. Um, do you not... Do you not sort of uh, separate those who are able to do that? Like a tech firm might be able to do that if you're working behind a desk or working from home, those kind of uh, uh, advantages that are there. But those that, let's say, are working at a site that may have constraints in time, maybe putting up a building or a single-family home, whatever it may be, but do we not separate society between those who are able to have that four-day work week and some professions that just don't allow it to happen? Well, I think we have to, you know, not be confined by um, you know, how things are currently. So one of the things I've, I've had this come up a lot, like, you know, some businesses can't just operate four days a week. Sure. But you you can have employees. Some employees work Monday to Thursday. Some employees work Tuesday to Friday. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're a seven day a week open business, then you just organize your employees in shifts that are uh, four days a week. Um, we have a number of businesses in Cowichan, for example, uh, the 360 heating systems uh, and uh, other kind of trades businesses, and they have a big billboard on the highway advertising four-day work week, right? So they've found a way to make that work for their business. I think it's it's a matter of, of saying, you know, we don't have to be confined to thinking that the only way we can organize a work week is in this five-day week because, as we know, you know, the the two-day weekend was also an invention, right? Uh, labor unions fought hard to get people um, the right to have two days off. And I think we can look at the world right now and recognize if we have this evidence that shows increased productivity, increased revenue, there's an incentive to businesses to figure out how do I make this work for the business that I'm in? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it benefits not only by my business, but the people who work for me. And I think the well-being and health of, of workers and employees really does have to be recognized as an asset for your business. If, you, if your employees are taking fewer sick days, mm-hmm. uh, which is another outcome of these four-day pilots, by the way, way fewer sick days, 
if they're taking less time off because of, uh, you know, being unwell or um, they're not leaving, they're staying with you. You're investing in them and that investment pays off because they're, they're inclined to stay with you. They, that four day week matters so much to them. You benefit as a business from all of that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you raise a very good point in regards to unions fighting for the, the two-day uh, weekend. And if you even think the way mm-hmm. society is set up today with kids and their summer holidays, families love it. But one would argue they were also set up so uh, kids could help uh, parents in an agrarian society okay. during harvest. So there's a lot of things that have just been set up the way they are, and we haven't moved away from that in regards to efficiency and even uh, providing people a, a bit more free time uh, as well. Uh, I'm just going to change subject just for a moment. Sure. and. It's simply because there's a lot of things on the table here in British Columbia. And as you know very well, as somebody who lives on the island, there's been significant challenges with BC Ferries. Um, Mm -hmm. The chair of the BC Ferries board, Joey McPhail, spoke to Global News earlier today. It's going to be part of their coverage tonight. Um, Mm -hmm. She was asked a little bit about the ongoing issues and leadership concerns. I want you to take a listen to what she had to say. Here's Joey Mm -hmm. McPhail. No one at BC Ferries, uh, the board or the leadership, thinks that this is acceptable. We um, are doing everything we possibly can until medium and long-term solutions are implemented to uh, get customers to their ship and sail and to make those who uh, miss a sailing or have to wait in our terminals to make them as comfortable as possible. I know that doesn't work for people who are having to wait one, two, three sailing waits, but we have a medium and a long-term plan Uh, to invest in technology, in in infrastructure, to expand our uh, capacity and uh, to modernize the corporation. Uh, Sonia, Mm -hmm. based on what uh, Joe McPhail has said, and I don't want to turn it into just what Ms. McPhail is saying, but the core Mm -hmm. challenges of BC Ferries, how do we get out of this mess? Because one vessel goes down, the whole system seems to be turned upside down. Uh, you know, you're telling customers, well, look on Twitter, not everybody's on Twitter, all those types of things. How do we fix this particular challenge? First of all, in the near term, which is this summer, but what are the deeper issues you think need to be dealt with at BC Ferries? You know, one of the things that, and it, it kind of connects to our conversation about the four-day work week. Um, there was a time in the past when a, a job at BC Ferries was really seen as a, 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 a well high sought after job. It mm-hmm. was a career. You could work your way up in the BC Ferries, uh, and your your pay was good. Your working conditions were really good, and that has really shifted uh, over the last couple of decades. And I was just on a tour. I was in West Vancouver, went up the Sunshine Coast and and, uh, came back down through Courtney back home. And Mm -hmm. so lots of ferry rides and talking to people uh, in those communities about the ferries. And one of the things that I heard over and over again was the expectation of the staff of BC Ferries. So the people that are working, not the captains, but obviously the people that are working on the ship and you need the ship to be fully staffed for it to run are often on casual part-time contracts. They don't have uh, regular schedules, and they're expected to be at the ferry on very short notice, and so they are, they're expected to live near the ferry. But, of course, we know about housing prices. Um, and so we have this chronic understaffing, partly because um, people working for BC Ferries feel that they're not valued and they're not really interested in sticking around in a job that doesn't feel like 
it has either good working conditions or good career prospects. So that's one thing that I think needs a really hard look at is if you want to have a stable uh, staff so that, you know, we understand that that is the primary thing to make these ships work, um, you've got to treat, you've got to value the staff. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that, you're absolutely right. That's part of the challenge as well. Keith Baldry will be joining us at four to talk a little bit about some of those challenges as well. Uh, I thank you for your time today. Look forward to chatting with you next week. I want to chat with you a little bit about Airbnb and housing. And hopefully we, if you have right. some time, we'd love to chat about that next week. Thank you so much for your time today. Happy to. Yeah, thanks so much, Jazz. Joining me now is our contributor, Jerry Mir Judson, who is also not doing a four-day work week. She's here five days a week, just <laughs> like us, uh, to talk a little bit about um, um, our Canadian women's uh, soccer team, who, of course, are involved in the World Cup that is going on right now in New Zealand and Australia. Yes, indeed they are. The World Cup is ongoing. It started on the 20th. And considering, you know, is uh, the four-day work week is a cool business decision, <laughs> I right. come with another cool business decision. It's an interesting partnership between FIFA and a social media outlet. There's lots in the news about women's soccer lately. Just today, the Canadian women's team reached an interim labour agreement with Canada Soccer concerning compensation for the 2023 season as well as pay parity with the men's team. And of course, the Women's World Cup kicked off in Australia and New Zealand this week. And you can catch a lot of the action this year in a very 2023 kind of way on TikTok in an official partnership. I spoke with Emmy Curtis, a sports reporter and content creator based out of Toronto, about this partnership and her part in it. TikTok's going to be bringing creators from around the world to Australia and New Zealand for the tournament, giving creators access to the event. It's, it's really a behind-the-scenes view for anybody interested in soccer or football, depending on, on what your preference is. I just love that this collaboration really shines a spotlight on women's sports around the world and gives players like equal representation and the recognition that they really deserve. You yourself, are you among these TikTok creators that get to get to go to Australia and New Zealand? I will be among the creators who are, I will be in, based out of Sydney, yes. I'm very kind of new to this whole content creation space, so this opportunity for me is just very exciting. And I love that, like when I started posting on TikTok, I knew I wanted to go very niche. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that even though I'm small, but, but uh, people are recognizing the impact that this this community ha- is and, and what it can be is really exciting for me. Oh my god, I'm so excited for you, and I'm really excited to to creep your to creep your TikTok and like follow along because I feel like with social media specifically, our relationship with women's sports, there's just like more visibility and more access. So actually, can you speak to like how you feel social media has changed the public relationship to women's sports? Oh, absolutely. And this is like what my personal brand is all about. I love the whole women in sports niche. And I think like the biggest impact that that social media and platforms like TikTok is that they give a voice. They, they, they're the opportunity to be a platform, be a voice, whether it's sports teams, brands or broadcasters, players. It gives them an outlet to create authentic moments and engage with other people in the sports community. And I can say for myself, like, I never thought that I could use the word community. Like, I always thought it was like, oh, my following, oh, my followers. But no, it's truthfully a community. And it's kind of like everyone has your back. Like, I have created so many friends and so many, like, now coworkers that I get to work alongside with. Everyone always has your back. But TikTok and social media is quickly becoming, like, such a go-to destination for women's sports content. And we've seen, like, 
huge growth in like the hashtag women in sports. Um, if I did my research right, like over 2 billion views on TikTok is what that hashtag currently stands wow. at. And honestly, like we live in this digital era where young girls, young boys, young people truthfully can go on social media, see an athlete or follow an industry professional and go, wow, I can be that. If they can do it, I can do it too. And if you want to follow Emmy's TikTok content at the Women's World Cup next month, you can find her at It's M Rain, E-M-R-A-I-N-E, on TikTok. How many uh, uh, followers does uh, Ms. Curtis have? She has, as of when I checked, 28 point something thousand followers. So, wow. so yeah. it really is about community then. Absolutely. Absolutely. I guess they call that she on the interview. She said she's like, I'm like a sort of a micro influencer. <laughs> right. We're just in the in the double digits. But yeah, double digit thousands. But her content is like stunning, super professional. She's only 20 years old. Oh, wow. Yeah. And she's already doing these big, big things. It's amazing to me. If you look at a lot of professional leagues, um, uh, NBA, NHL, they'll invite specific influencers now. And some of them have huge following. Mm-hmm. Some don't. But it does create a certain community. And they're just so integral to marketing and sharing information now with fans. Like, I don't even know the last time I actually, hate to say this, sat through a sports cast. <gasps> I still do that. I'm a huge sports <laughs> fan. I mean, I still do it in the evenings. But so much of what I get now is through Instagram and Twitter. And, it's bite-sized. Yeah, it is yeah. bite-sized. But it's amazing what you can get. Uh, and you can be so micro-targeted too, right? Exactly. And then through these little channels and through these niches, you can um, open people up through their little algorithm to things they might not normally see. Like, they might just through the algorithm on TikTok catch some people that might not be into women's sports so much and then get new fans for and the also, televised and stuff. And also, uh, not that, uh, you know, professional uh, sports journalists or professional sports journalists, they cover this stuff, but it's always nice to have somebody with a new set of eyes and ears watching a sport, interacting with folks, reacting. I think that's part of the authenticity as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you, Jazz. We are talking about BC Ferries. Joining me now is Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief, uh, Keith Baldry. Keith, thank you for talking to us today. Always good to be here, Jazz. So I thought I'd read those emails that I just received in the last hour or so. So let's just start with the, the, the issue number one here. What the heck is going on over BC Ferries? Or on a daily basis, whether it's communications they're poor at, there's mechanical issues, uh, technical issues, staffing shortages, uh, confusion about the availability of reservations. What is going on over there? Well, you just listed all the reasons what's going on. Uh, so it's not just one thing. It uh, seems to be everything. So it starts with, with an ongoing staffing shortage, which has been playing out for months now. And if you recall, the story then was the odd sailing cancellation, um, sometimes several sailing cancellations because of staff shortage. Now you've got added to that uh, knocking out of service a key vessel, which is the Coastal Celebration. And for those who say the answer is building new vessels, keep in mind, Coastal Celebration is a new vessel, relatively, certainly much much younger than the Spirit class, for example. So building new ships doesn't necessarily solve the problem because ships develop mechanical problems. Then you've got uh, the sudden problem with the website, which people have been using now for years uh, to figure out when to sail, what time they're sailing, uh, how, you know, if there are there any delays. Uh, this reservation system now has a number of problems associated with it as well. All these are coming together at the worst possible time because this is the busiest time of year for BC Ferries. So at a time when people are really needing to use BC Ferries, all these problems come into play, and it's almost a domino effect. And then on top of that, for the last week, and this came up 
a couple of times at a just completed news conference with Premier David Eby over here in Victoria. Mm-hmm. I asked first couple of questions. My colleagues followed. Most of the questions were about BC Ferries. And are you happy with the management of ferries? Because one thing we've seen the last week, where is everybody? You know, we're, we haven't heard from the CEO or the vice president or the, the head of communications or any real or a news conference to explain what's going on. The management has suddenly disappeared on vacation or something. And E.B., you could tell he was very frustrated at this news conference. He said he, he phoned and talked to management this morning. That he's going to get to the bottom of this. That he wants some answers quick. He does say this is the new management team that's in place, um, replacing the old one. Uh, but I'll tell you, the um, the problem's all coming together at the worst possible time, and then no one at BC Ferries around to talk about it, other than the somewhat beleaguered Karen Johnson, who's relatively new there. She was a communications person in provincial government for a number of years. She's now uh, a mid-level person at BC Ferries, and she's been left holding the can here, answering all the media calls to the best of her ability. And I don't think she has all the answers either. No, absolutely. Uh, now, Joy McPhail, I understand, did speak to Global BC today, and, and we'll We'll hear about that on the 5 and 6 o'clock newscast tonight. Here's a comment from Ms. McPhail in regards to when the public will see some changes. In some areas of the company already, some of the routes, there is change. And, and again, I understand that where the change has not occurred and there are real capacity issues, um, there have been improvements. There's been investments, increased capacity that's really worked. We have a $5 billion investment plan for building ships, for bringing in technology and improving our information technology and upgrading and modernizing um, our terminals. Now, that sounds all well and good. Do you think it was a mistake for them to uh, do what they did in regards to, under the BC Liberals, it was still obviously a public-owned entity, but it was at an arm's length. Uh, They let, essentially, the CEO and the executive team run BC Ferries uh, like a business. Do you think this is a a commentary on a different direction in regards to where the NDP have taken BC Ferries? I don't think they've taken it in a dramatically different direction. Uh, the model hasn't changed. There's still a contract in place. What they did, there was a replacement of the CEO, mm-hmm. um, which one can argue, well, you know, one of the reasons he was let go is that he fired 3,000, several thousand people out of the blue at the beginning of the pandemic when the rest of the public service was, was you know, being protected, even though they're not technically part of the public service. Um, so replacing the CEO, I don't think... Um, righted the ship or wronged the ship. I mean, these things are happening uh, despite who's in charge. Now, Nicholas Jimenez has come over there as a CEO. He's the guy that turned ICBC back on its feet. So, I mean, by all accounts, and again, this was a guy who was brought in by the VC Liberals uh, at ICBC, and he's, he's fixed, he fixed things there. Now he's been parachuted into BC Ferries. But with David Hahn, the previous CEO for BC Ferries, who was brought in under Gordon Campbell and said, hey, run this the way you want to run it, we may not agree with you all the time, but you make the right business decisions. Do you think you would have done things differently today and now, just based on the last four oh, yeah. weeks? Oh, yeah. On, <laughs> on was a colorful character. If he, if he was on vacation or if he was off, he would have come in from the cabin or wherever he was and got to work. 
And, you know, I've told this story many times. I mean, he takes a hands-on approach on, when it comes to crises. And I think you could argue BC Ferries has been in a crisis for the past week with so many people stranded or kept in the dark about the status of their of their sailing. Um, and I just don't think Han would have sat by and let this unfold. Well, he would have been phoning this show. That's the type of guy he was. He'd phone radio shows. He'd phone the TV station and say, look, you know, we've got a problem, and here's my view of it. I remember him. I remember the night the Queen of the North sank um, before it was announced. My daughter shows up in our bedroom and said, Dad, your cell phone keeps ringing. You left it out in the hall at 2 o'clock in the morning. I look at it and got four missed calls from David Hahn. At 2 o'clock in the morning, I thought, uh-oh, something's up. Phone him back. He says, you better get up. The Queen of the North has sunk. And I said, how many how, you know, what, how many casualties? He says, we have no idea. So here's the guy, or the worst possible disaster that ever hit BC, BC Ferries, and he starts phoning the media to get up and inform the public before they have all the details, which sort of violates all your classic PR rules from companies to say, don't say anything until you've got all the facts. But no, his view was get the public out there, tell them what's going on as fast as possible. So no, he would have been hands-on this past what, week, no question. Were you the one who told me that there was, I think you called him once and there was a, was a four-sailing wait and, and, yep. uh, and into Wassner's, and what did he do? Yeah, so I phoned him and ran into an unexpected five-sailing weight, which is very uncommon back in those days, and said, what's going on here? So he hired a country rock band to play at the, at the terminal, and I also believe he told all the vendors, hand out free water and Coke and pop, and I'll, I'll pick up the tap. So that was the approach of um, of Han when it came to the, this uh, this type of situation. He's very creative responding to problems. And I just think the ferry, ferries have gone to sleep for the past week when um, the, the website continues to be very confusing. It's different than their Twitter feed, which seems to be a more accurate uh, description of what's going on. I've had people phone me say they, they'd phone Tawasin and Horseshoe Bay would have completely different reads of the situation of uh, how, who, how, what sailing weight there was and whose terminal had more cars or, or more vessels ready to go. So it's just been a massive confusion for the past week at the worst possible traveling. Joined by Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. We're talking about the challenges that BC Ferries uh, is dealing with. Uh, give us a call on the open line in regards to what you would like to see in regards to fixing this problem. 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell phone. Uh, let's go to Yoram in East Vancouver. Hi, Yoram. Hey, guys. How's it going? I'm doing well. What's on your mind? Uh, suffering in the traffic, you know, <laughs> the usual. Yeah. But um, but the, the thing is, is uh, on the Sunshine Coast, we've been discussing this for over two years. We had a consultation with the provincial government, mm-hmm. and we actually um, proposed to, do, uh, they proposed to build a causeway at one point about two years ago, and they were going to fund it. It was going to be $7.4 billion was going to be the, the cost. They looked into it already. And uh, so um, I'd suggest a causeway, you know, island hopping causeway, so you can, you know, cover it over to, you know, um, um, Bowen Island and all that, and then come over to the coast and uh, and and you know land it in Langdale, same same place as the as as, as the ferries go. And secondly, to ac- declare ferries an essential service. Your uh, got to be something that that that, that they got to do. Thanks for your call, your Keith. It sounds great on paper. I mean, and you know this very well. I think it was Pat McGear, former cabinet minister, used to have a model in his basement. He's always talked about advocating for a bridge to to, to Vancouver Island. Um, I guess the question really here is, how do you get something of that size as an infrastructure project? A, you find the money for it. B, 
I could just imagine the environmental protests alone in regard to building well, a causeway. Well, the caller was talking about the Sunshine Coast, and that's not where the problem is. You know, you live on the Sunshine Coast, but that's not where the population is. The biggest, the biggest and busiest sailings are from Tawasson to Swartz Bay mm-hmm. and Horseshoe Basin and Imo. So that's where the bridge idea has been kicked about. And you're right, Tiger, Dr. Pat McGear, the mad scientist, former um, uh, social credit cabinet minister famously advocated for a bridge. There was a study done, an in-depth study by the BC Transportation Ministry that said that was a completely unworkable idea, uh, because largely because the Georgia Strait or the Sailor Sea is one of the deepest trenches in the entire world. This is not an easy place to sink uh, a, a bottom, unlike the Confederation Bridge in PEI. Uh, so a floating bridge would be impossible. Anyone who's been out there and seen some of the howling windstorms knows such a bridge would disappear pretty quickly in one of those hurricane-like windstorms we get in the, on the strait. So, no, a, a fixed link, kicked around. People forget the geography. It's not down to Victoria. It would be basically to Duncan and Richmond. That's the line mm-hmm. that's been talked about. Um, but it would be $16 billion. That's, that was 10 years ago, likely in excess of $20 billion now. But again, it's the ge- geographical and engineering um, concerns that they just wouldn't be able to get to the bottom, literally, to fix the bridge to the seabed. And that's been the big obstacle. So I don't see that happening. It was There was a look at a Sort of a super uh, highway bridge up in the Sunshine Coast, but that was shelved as well. And that one ran into some environmental uh, issues as well. Uh, Keith, uh, I remember uh, at the beginning of this segment, I read a, an email from Sally about being stuck uh, because of some sort of ferry uh, engine problem. Well, we just got an email from BC Ferry saying the Coastal Renaissance, here we go, uh, on a Friday, the Coastal Renaissance is currently holding in dock at Tawasson uh, due to a mechanical issue, the 315 p.m. 15 p.m. sailing from Tawasson to Duke Point will be delayed as we investigate the problem with the ship's engine. We are working to fix this. We'll keep you informed as more information oh. becomes available. As well, as the problem. once you know it. So again, yes. this is the coastal ferry, yeah. a coastal class ferry, and the coastals have been an issue from time to time since they were first bought. I mean, the the um, uh, the spirit ferries, which and I, ride, I used to ride the ferries a lot. I don't ride them so much anymore. But my wife and I, you know, we take the kids back and forth years ago. We always aimed for a spirit ferry because they were dependable, the biggest, the roomiest. Uh, and the coastals always had this vibration problem. They're much narrower. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's not a comfortable setting. But there have been these mechanical issues with the coastal far in far greater number than the spirits. But it's, I mean, again, talk about the worst possible time for Friday, ferries to get yeah. hit by on a Friday by again another vessel going down. I mean, this is just going to drive people bonkers. I mean, at the very least, anyone listening. Do not show up at a ferry terminal without a reservation. That is just completely a dumb idea to do. You've yeah. got to have a reservation. But even then, we're getting reports from people saying that's doesn't that's not enough right now to guarantee you're going to get on the sailing you actually reserve for. Keith, we're running out of time. Thank you so right. much. Have, have a great weekend. weekend. That's Keith Avoid Baldry. The yeah. Well, persistent drought condition and above-average water use means Metro Vancouver will soon move to Stage 2 water restrictions. Uh, the restrictions uh, which will pro- which uh, prohibit all lawn watering will come into effect on Friday, August 4th. Uh, since the start of, of May, water consumption across the region has been about 20% higher than it was last year. Joining me to talk a little bit about the, the Stage 2 water restriction uh, is George Harvey, who's the Mayor of Delta and Chair of Metro Vancouver's Board of Directors. George, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you, and I really feel for the fairies that just continue to have bad luck. 
Yeah, yeah. You, I'm, I'm sure you've been stuck many a time in this. I certainly have. It's, it's not a fun feeling. It just, uh, I wish fairies would just get over this, whatever bad spell they're going through. Uh, maybe they're getting it out of their system before the BC Day long weekend, but uh, hopefully it's, it's temporary and can be dealt with very quickly. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the stage two um, conversation here. Was this a difficult decision? I, I'm just curious as to the process uh, the, the GVR, sorry, the Metro Vancouver goes through in its water committee to make this announcement. No, it's, it's uh, been planned and we've been watching uh, the consumption. As you mentioned, uh, we're up over 20% higher than last year and the weather forecasts are continue for warm, dry weather. The actual decision is made by the commissioner, our CAO, Jerry DeBrahoni, uh, in accordance with policies approved through Metro. Uh, but the biggest thing, Jazz, is uh, we want to ensure that we don't have to go to stage three. And by doing this, uh, we hope to get through a time in order that we get back to the October and late September, perhaps, and where we have the rains coming to replenish our supplies. What is stage uh, three? What does it look three like? basically is stopping everything, uh, including washing cars and uh, commercial activities. Uh, it's much more strenuous. Uh, but in this case, um, when you look at what happens right now is... 50, or more than 50% of our drinking water is used for outdoor watering purposes. And by putting stage two in place in a week, um, I'm confident that that will really help us get through the rest of the dry season here. Mm-hmm. I, I'm so curious. So, sorry, go ahead. So it's 50%. Now, watering lawns is a huge consumption of our water. So by taking this action now, it's important that we reserve our supply in our reservoirs in order that we can get through this dry spell because it looks like it's going to continue. Uh, is there a breakdown? Would you have the breakdown in regards to just how water is used in our region between residential, municipal, commercial, agricultural, industrial? Like, would you have a rough rough breakdown? I'm just curious. Uh, no, I, I don't have it in front of me. Uh, I know we, our staff do have that effect. But again, uh, it's all drawn by the same sources. It's, it's drinking water. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we need to protect that. But again, uh, our biggest focus right now is starting is, you know, restricting the use to, well, especially watering our lawns. It's not essential, and but it can continue you know, ensuring our water supply stays is essential. Mm-hmm. Uh, how much of this, I mean, I, I, I did speak to Malcolm Brody a few weeks ago, and I know Richmond is under water metering. Uh, Vancouver is, I believe Surrey is as well. Uh, I know in the city of Delta, um, where I live as well, uh, you know, I you know, I, I, my water usage, I can tell it, the bill comes in, I think, every three months or four months. Um, but not all municipalities in Metro Vancouver have water meters. Do you think that's part of the problem? And that, you know, if, if, if you know you're going to use water and you know what it's costing you and it depends, and that consumption pattern is monitored and it shows up on your bill, it does impact usage and how you consume things. Do you think that's part of the challenge here that some municipalities have not moved towards water metering and they're getting away with uh, a lot more than uh, communities that have actually made that jump towards water metering? Yeah, I think watering, personally, I think in Delta, we're uh, trying to do as many water meters as we can. Of course, all the new buildings, new construction, they all have uh, water meters as a requirement. Uh, But slowly we are moving forward and getting more of of our city involved in so far as being metered. Again, I think cons- you know the user should pay. Consumption of it should be paying for itself. Um, but I think the biggest problem that we have here is our generous use of water. And uh, certainly, people think that we can turn the tap on at any time. Uh, we're trying to re- improve our communications to show people that this is a valuable resource and not one that actually just has endless use. 
uh, again, it's uh, we need to move forward, which we will in a week, to stop you know the outdoor watering of lawns, especially and other other restrictions. And I see I see these with the exception of outdoor watering of lawns, the others are pretty pretty not that hard to follow. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can still continue to save you know work on your garden and so far as hand uh, sprinkling your plants and uh, and flowers. Uh, I think that people find that extremely important to do. But if we can get a good uh, concerted effort amongst all our users to stop watering their lawns, uh, that'll take us into a very good step towards September and October. Uh, George, we're adding, depending on the year, depending on immigration policies, fifty to 100,000 people to this province every single year. We are expecting uh, another million people here by 2050, probably another 300,000 by the end of this decade. Uh, no amount of conservation is going to uh, help us when it comes to dealing with another million people here. What are the plans for uh, our reservoirs and, and dealing with a significant increase of our population from 2.7 million to 3.7 million potentially by 2050? How do we deal with our water issues then? What kind of planning is going on now? And, and is there any sense of cost in regards to a new reservoir or, or upgrading the present reservoir? Yes, it's so important that we ensure and work forward in Metro Vancouver to have an adequate water supply, and we, uh, you know, that we need to ensure that appropriate infrastructure is in place to meet those future drinking water demands, and they're going to be high demands too. Uh, but we are working right now with regards to planning for a Quitlam Lake water supply project, and that is the most important project we have now for ensuring that we have that water for the future drinking water. It allows us to access additional water supplies from Coquitlam Lake. Uh, that planning, as I mentioned, is currently underway. We expect construction to start, start in the late 2020s with completion in the late 2030s. Again, these projects are massive. They're not, not Everything at Metro is in billions of dollars, as you know, and significant tunneling in order that we can connect a supply. Any idea what the cost is for that particular project right now? I know it's early stages, but roughly how much would that cost? No, it'll be in the billions for sure, and uh, I don't have those costs in front of me, and, and that's what we're waiting at the board is to get regular reports as to what the planning process, but there's a lot of consultations, consultations with First Nations that are involved, so it is take does take time, but it's an active project of importance to the Metro Vancouver board. And so just to confirm finally here, it's residential watering, so let's say a, a golf course, they're still left alone, so because it is a commercial, um, uh, uh, commercial entity, it'll be left alone? Uh, the fairways and golf courses can be watered anytime for one day in a seven-day period. Okay, one day. All right. Uh, now, you know, we, you know, the Tawasson Springs here, I get phone calls all the time. Uh, why are you allowing watering on Tawasson Springs? Well, they do not use city water uh, for the watering of the fairways. It's, it's a source within the irrigation system that they have here. Uh, but they invested uh, to get away from the municipal water system, and it's actually been extremely uh, cost-effective for them. Well, they've so, been uh, uh, thinking ahead, that's overall, for sure. <laughs> overall, the golf courses are subjected to just one day for the fairways in a seven-day period. Okay. George, thank you so much. Uh, I know you're very busy. I appreciate you, you touching base, base with us and informing our audience. Thanks so much. Have yourself a great weekend. You too. Thank you. And anytime. Goodbye now. is over. That's all. Thank you. All right. That's a wrap. It's Friday, and this is The Wrap on the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Thank God it's...
This week we asked, is it time BC mandate a four-day work week and got milk? Should a Kamloops realtor who drank milk from a carton in a house he was showing be hit with a $20,000 fine? Joining us today is our regular rap panel, Leah Halive is a TV reporter and radio host, and Sarah Daniels is a real estate agent in South Surrey. She's an author and broadcaster as well. Leah, Sarah, welcome. TGIF, Hi my friend. TGIF. Not if you're at the Tawasin Ferry Terminal, I tell you right now. Yeah. Another ferry I've down. I've my reservations for September, so I'm, I'm on it. I'm on it. <laughs> no, I'm, you should. They, they, we have Baldry, I Keith, Keith Baldry and I were doing a segment on <laughs> ferries, and sure enough, it was like the gods of news going 315. The ferry there got canceled. The Coastal Renaissance, the 545, the Parting Duke Point is canceled. Uh, and while the team I'm is going to build a bridge, I'm going to start <laughs> building now. People feel free to join in. We will start building a bridge. Twenty billion dollars is the estimate. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Which means it'll be a hundred billion. What are you worried about? It's exactly. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, let's talk about a, a four day work week. Four day week global, which is a New Zealand based nonprofit, uh, led a global pilot project with, with co- companies um, in various sectors participating, including co- companies in Canada the U.S., Australia, United Kingdom. Uh, and after uh, the lengthy pilot, uh, the results came in the last couple of days. Uh, revenue at these firms participating grew by 15%. Uh, there was hmm. a self-reported mental and physical health scores improved by 17 and 12% respect, uh, uh, respectively. Uh, overall, Everybody was happy with this four-day work week, and 100% of the companies that participated say they're going to stay with their four-day work week plan. Yes. Now, Sonia Firstenow was on the show earlier today, and she talked about BC needing to implement a pilot project similar to this. So, Leah, let me start with you first and foremost. What do you think of the idea of four-day work week? I know it sounds great on paper, and it may work <laughs> for some jobs, but do you think we can actually implement something like this society-wide in this province? I mean, I guess it depends on the industry because I, I mean, I believe in work-life balance. I think it's so important for your mental health. I think some companies can do this, but I'm wondering, is it four days, 10 hours a day or is it four days, eight hours a day? Probably 10. If it's, if it's 10, then yeah, I mean, those extra hours can add it, but to have that extra day off, I think it's, I think it's good. I think for certain companies, certain industries, this can be beneficial. I know like with, like you said, for certain, you know, especially radio and TV and stuff that ain't going to fly, mm-hmm. but I think for other industries I think it's a great idea having Mm -hmm. that extra day off you can get so much done because it seems like Saturday and Sunday go by so fast so if you had like a Friday or a Monday I think it's a great idea yeah Uh, one of our listeners uh, during the commercial break uh, Jeannie sent this to me she goes oh please have all the four-day work weeks you want (laughs) that your that's your choice but please don't whine about not being able to afford a house in the lower mainland whatever happened to working hard (laughs) I feel old saying that this message is sent from the deck of my fully paid for home that was a achieved by myself, no <laughs> donations, and a 40-hour-plus work week during my 32-year career. Hun, <laughs> nice. I just got wow. <laughs> Sarah, your thoughts? Wow, we've been served. Just basically, <laughs> talk to the hand, sister, because I the, don't care. The, the boomer uh, off the top rope there, I think. Holy cow. <laughs> that, no, I'm, I'm self-employed, so, I mean, as much fun as it would be yeah. to say I'm not working three days of the week, as a self-employed person, I would be a very poor self-employed person. I mean, you know, nobody really cares if, if I have plans at 8.30 on a Thursday. They're going to call me anyhow, right? So you just it, that's my work-life balance. You take, you take what you take and you get what you get. I mean, 
exactly what Leah said. It depends on the uh, on the on the actual kind of business. We've talked about this before when the city of Vancouver was doing a four day work week, and that sounds all fine. But then if certain aspects are closed down for the general public, or if it's like you know like entire yeah. departments are you know all of a sudden remote working. For those of us that actually have to access in person a lot of those services, mm-hmm. it's, it's just not going to work. So it really does depend. Yeah, I mean, true. sometimes I actually look at a lot of government services and go, like, aren't they already on a two-day work week? I mean, really? Anybody <laughs> like, hello, is anybody there? Yeah, um, that's But true. That's, that's across the board, and I'm, I'm, I'm not, like, picking on provincial, municipal, or federal. They're all equally bonkers at times. So, yeah, it just sort of depends. We are talking to our Friday wrap panel, Leah Halive and Sarah Daniels. Uh, let's talk about this incredibly strange story out of uh, Kamloops. Uh, Liska Fullerton wanted to sell her house and uh, she found herself a realtor, Mike Rose. And Mr. Rose was preparing her home for a showing. Now, in that house was one of those ring cameras. Uh, CFJC-TV in Kamloops covered the story and they're going to give you an update in regards to what transpired next. When Liska Fullerton looked back at her ring security camera footage, she didn't expect this. Local realtor Mike Rose is preparing her home for a showing on July 16th. While he's in the kitchen, he looks around, opens the curtains, and then opens the fridge. He then takes out a jug of milk and drinks right from the container. On a previous visit to show her house, Fullerton says her camera shows Rose looking in the fridge and inadvertently breaking the arm of her couch. So the story goes on and on. But at the end of the day, uh, Mr. Rose uh, has been fined $20,000 for his actions. Uh, And and he he wishes it was vodka that he was drinking. (laughs) Because if you're going to do it, you probably want to go. Just give me a slug right now and call it a day. Yeah. Let's ask Sarah if she's done this. Mr. Rose Rose has apologized for his actions. He said he had taken some medication. He was dehydrated. uh, And he he made a full apology. But there is a $20,000 fine. Now, you know, we have semis driving into overpasses literally every third week these days in the lower (laughs) mainland. And they may get a $100, $200 fine. I think the Ministry of Transportation is now finally getting to the point where they said we're going to raise the penalty in a significant way. But Mr. Rose got hit with $20,000. Twenty thousand dollar fine for shotgunning some milk. I know everybody's going. Rich realtors can afford it, but you know. know. Leah, let me start with you. What do you think? I mean, uh, (laughs) I mean, okay. So I have a vision. He broke the arm of the couch. How do you do that? How do you break the arm of the couch? I'd like some footage on that, please. I want to know. Have to think it was probably on its way out anyhow. But after the milk. Maybe the milk was tainted. I don't know. Like, I just I think $20,000 is a lot of money. But then think about COVID. Did he forget about COVID? He drank it out of the carton. <laughs> Put it in a glass, at least. Put it in a glass, sir. You know, then maybe it would have been 10 bucks. I don't know. To me, I just think this whole thing is crazy. 20 grand seems like a lot. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> I, me, I, I mean, a lot. I think- I can see. I, I I wouldn't have a problem, and you know, I, I know people have done this before. I've I've probably done it myself, where I've actually taken a glass from the the cu- cupboard and got a glass of water or water. drank from the yeah. tap. I mean, that's fine. But the now, I will say that here's here's. But here's the thing: is yeah, I mean, that's bad, and twenty thousand dollars seems like a lot. Uh-huh. But again, I mean, there is a level of that is expected from realtors and anybody in the financial services. Mm-hmm. And yes, twenty thousand dollars seems like a lot, but you know, you are entrusting people to go into your home. So I'm a real. I'm, you know, I have to be licensed and bonded. 
So you're trusting me to like let people into your home, market your home, etc. So it was it was it seems excessive. It probably is. And is our financial the financial uh, arms of the our, our business now getting stricter about uh, maintaining and moder- moderating the, the realtor you know population? Yes. I mean, $20,000 does seem a lot because I, I know in recent years there's been, you know, indiscriminate sort of crap that's happened in the realtor, you know, business and people have gotten a slap on the wrist for some pretty mm-hmm. egregious behavior. So, you know, it's probably more representative of trying to keep a, a, a level of standards, but it is a lot of money for a glass of milk. Like I said, I mean, the poor guy, he probably wouldn't have <laughs> bought it right now. Maybe well, they're setting a precedent too, well, right? Maybe well, they want to set setting, a precedent. Yeah. yeah. Remember but the yeah, remember mean, the remember the service tech who ran for the Conservative Party in 2015, and he and it happened to be a TV sting by CBC, and they caught him peeing in a cup. That's oh, so awful. God. <laughs> <laughs> that? Yeah, that's yeah. That's and, and the thing is that like he didn't get fined. I bet mean, he didn't get fined. <laughs> But the peeing in the cup thing is like, I mean, seriously, like you were, there was nowhere else. Yeah, I mean, yeah, go exactly. in the garden. But, but there was something not unlike this a couple of years ago. Remember the guy that went in into the person's backyard and picked all the apples or the plums or something like that? And, yeah. And he, and he was the realtor and he got, I think he got like more, more shamed than anything else and probably a $1,500 fine. But yeah, yeah, I think, I think Le- Le- Leah's probably right because of, you know, there is, there was the kind of and, COVID right? and. There are disease issues. Yeah. If, he'd, mm-hmm. if he poured himself a glass of milk into a glass and drank it and then put the glass in the dishwasher, yeah. I'm sure she probably wouldn't have been upset these things kind of happened. But I generally don't make a habit of opening clients' uh, refrigerators <laughs> unless I'm making sure if it's a house that's kind of derelict that the refrigerator actually does work. <laughs> no, right? well, and I guarantee no one's going to do that now. Oh, one assumes, but you just never. I mean, and 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 look, I I agree. What he did was wrong. I we had an overpass hit by a a semi. Was it last week or week and a half ago? Oh yeah, yeah. My mom got my mom got stuck behind it actually. Yeah, (laughs) my mom got stuck behind it. Was able to scoot in through Ladner. None of the cars behind. Yeah, there's certain damage to the vehicle, and there were some insurance issues. But in regards to a fine, those drivers, if they are found negligent are not going to be hit with a $20,000 fine. That's what I found. As they should, though. (laughs) I know. Exactly. And it's just, it's, uh, that's what kind of shook me. Milk versus an overpass, you know, and then overpass, by the way, that overpass, by the way, in Ladner is still closed in one of the lanes. So that should tell you. It's causing even more damage. Exactly. Ladies, have yourself a wonderful week and lovely to chat with you as always. Happy Friday, my friends, and good luck, everybody, on the way to the ferry terminals. We're thinking of you. There you go. (laughs) And no hitting overpasses, please. Yes, not today, not this week. Or anything else for that matter. Exactly. Uh, Get your own milk. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.